I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Sam Rogovinas, director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program and editor of the Lowy Institute Papers. Prior to joining the Lowy Institute, Sam was a senior strategic analyst in Australia's peak intelligence agency, the Office of National Assessments, where his work mainly dealt with North Asian strategic affairs, including nuclear strategy and Asian military forces. Sam also worked on arms control policy in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and as an analyst in the Defence Intelligence Organisation. In today's discussion, Sam and I sit down to discuss the regional order, the recent defence strategic review, AUKUS and US-China relations. I hope you enjoy. As you see it, can you paint the picture of the regional order, what currently maintains it and what is Australia's place within that regional order? Oh, huge question. Well, we're transitioning from a US-led order to a multipolar order, I would argue. Um, so the period of, of unequivocal... Uh, U.S. leadership of unipolarity really lasted from the end of the Cold War until uh, roughly the period of, well, I mean, it's hard to put a date on it. It's still happening right now. Uh, We're slowly transitioning away from it. Um, But China's uh, rise as as an economic power really began in the 1980s and then in the 1990s was the beginning of its its military modernisation and that has now reached the point where I think uh, we we can definitely uh, call an end to the era of US unipolarity. Of course, America itself has been a major contributor to that through its... um, it's very expensive uh, and uh, distracting wars in the Middle East uh, during the uh, the war on terrorism period. Uh, and so we've now reached a point where uh, the regional order has been, uh, as I said, transformed from one of unipolarity to one of multipolarity. It, it, the, the shape of that is still very indistinct and very unclear simply because uh, the United States has never unequivocally uh, resigned its place at the top of the pecking order and there are still elements of uh, of the United States leadership class, if you like to put it that way, that are committed to, uh, are committed to primacy, US primacy in the region. So, in fact, uh, the, the, the last national security statement produced by the Trump administration stated that goal unequivocally. Now... There is a, a disconnect, an increasingly harsh disconnect, strong disconnect between U.S. rhetoric and U.S. capabilities. 
Um, so in effect, U- US military force structure in our region hasn't really changed very much since the end of the Cold War. It's roughly the same. There's been some additions, some some changes at the margins, and certainly US force uh, posture is changing in the region. So it's moving its forces around the region much more, including, as we'll get into, uh, in t- to Australia. Uh, but the overall weight of US forces in the region hasn't changed that much. Uh, and so we're, uh, as I said, we're in this period where uh, Chinese military strength and Chinese foreign policy ambitions are growing considerably. Uh, US re- the US rhetorically hasn't moved away decisively from maintaining leadership and maintaining primacy, but increasingly in capability terms, we are moving towards a multipolar era. And of course, on top of that, we have uh, massive changes in uh, the massive growth in India, now the most populous nation on earth, uh, and an increasingly significant economic power. Uh, we have the nuclearization of North Korea, which has significantly uh, changed the um, uh, the strategic uh, balance between uh, regional powers and also with the United States. Uh, and I would argue, in years to come, in the decades to come, we're going to see the rise of Indonesia as a uh, as a great power. Um, by some estimates, it'll be the fourth largest economy in the world by the middle of this century. Yeah, so you, you talk about this this multipolarity. You would say that it is the US, China, and you would you would throw India and in Indonesia eventually into that that mix. Is that how you see that the multi part of that polarity equation? Uh, also, Russia and Japan, and potentially in future a unified Korea. Um, so I think a unified Korea that is strong economically and also has nuclear weapons uh, would be, I think, would sit at the top table as a great power in the region, yeah. and I think would behave independently. Um, you know, I- even if the United States was still uh, on the Korean Peninsula in some uh, in some fashion, in some capacity, I think it would be uh, an independent st- strategic power potentially with nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think we would put them at the top table as well. Yeah, so you talk about the, the nuclearisation. Um, would you say that that's the biggest threat to the regional order for the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, or is there something else that might be threatening the regional order as it is? No, I think the biggest threat to the regional order is really the the contest between the United States and China, and whether we have a contest between the US and China. Uh, a lot of commentators, I think, would believe that that contest is already ongoing, is, is already uh, underway, Um I'm hesitant to go that far. Um, when you consider the historical precedent, uh, in, in 1947, the Truman administration, President Truman himself, stood before Congress and a national radio audience and announced the containment doctrine. Right? So basically said that the, the policy of the United States should be to, um, to stand against uh, Soviet military and economic and diplomatic power globally and it would assist every government in every way it could to contain Soviet power. Uh, and in subsequent years, the United States you know, reversed or uh, stopped its post-war demobilisation, created NATO, uh, created the Marshall Plan, basically created a, a national security state entirely devoted to fighting uh, and to containing Soviet power. Nothing like that has happened in in the current case against uh, vis-a-vis China. So, um, to me, it's premature to say that we are we are in a period of competition between the US and China, uh, and that we're in a Cold War 2.0, uh, because the United States hasn't fully committed to that goal. It has rhetorically, but in substance, it has not. 
Um, and that's something actually I think that Australian policymakers don't take seriously enough. Mm, so you're pretty much saying that you know the the likening of today's um, strategic situation is 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 unlike that of what happened at the end of World War Two, the release of NSC sixty eight, these sort of things, because the US hasn't accepted the challenge. That China is obviously instigating with with the range of multilateral institutions that it's created and, and its behaviour and its expansion, mm. but that isn't being repl- replicated by the US. Yeah, it hasn't accepted the challenge, and I think for good reason. It's because China's rise fundamentally is not a threat to America's vital interests. Now, that is a stark statement, and a lot of people are going to disagree with that, um, but the United States alone among the, the nations of the earth uh, defines its security in these incredibly capacious terms. So, um, you know, for instance, the, the 2022 National Security Strategy released by uh, the Biden administration said that America cannot be secure if Asia is not secure. And what that meant is that, you know, America cannot be secure unless the United States is the leading you know, strategic power and China uh, cannot um, achieve leadership in Asia. But is that actually true? I've never seen anyone... Uh, to me, argue persuasively uh, that there is a clear connection between America's security and the strategic order in Asia. After all, America is inherently a very secure country. Um, Thousands of nuclear weapons, the biggest economy in the world, uh, the biggest military in the world. It's very economically independent of all the uh, OECD economies. It is the least dependent on international trade. Uh, So what, what... what actually is the argument that the United States cannot be secure unless Asia is, you know, America dominated? I, I don't see it myself. And if you're going to take on a contest of the scale of uh, uh, of a a new Cold War against China, you better have a really good reason. You need an existential reason, uh, in effect. And I don't think America has one. And so, for good reason, it hasn't committed in the way that. We talked about with regard to the, the the first Cold War. Yeah, so you've highlighted the disconnect between the rhetoric and the actual action on the ground. Um, what would you expect to see if something did change? Um, what, what sort of actions would you see? That you well, I, th- I think we're at the point now where, as I said earlier, there, there have been changes at the margin. So uh, I think up to this point, the most significant one is the fact that uh, the United States moved more submarines to Guam, for instance, and now possibly it's moving more submarines again to Western Australia, to HMA Stirling under this rotational force. We don't yet know where those submarines will come from, but if that's a new commitment to the region that comes out of you know pre- other commitments to, say, uh, to Europe or, or to the continental US, then that's a significant shift. But... Uh, it's still kind of marginal. I mean, we're way past that point. When you consider the scale of the Chinese military build-up, uh, which is unlike anything we've seen since the Second World War, then far more dramatic gestures are, call- are called for. If the United States, I think, was truly committed to maintaining military and strategic leadership in Asia, then I think it, it ought to be thinking about pulling out of Europe altogether and leaving European security to the Europeans and then effectively moving its forces to the Asia-Pacific. That, I think, is the scale of gesture that's now required if the United States is actually intent on signalling that it, it wants unequivocally to remain the leading power in this region. Yeah, well, um, in terms of what the region wants, we've had recently the President of the Philippines call for, he said that he would welcome an increased US presence in that country. Um, in South Korea, uh, sentiment for going nuclear is at an all-time high, gaining a nuclear capability. Um, 
what does that kind of say about how the region sees the US and, and kind of does the region want the US to maintain in the leadership? Yeah, well, I think those two examples actually show, send different signals. So the, the take the Philippines first. Um, yeah, there is th- th- that's clearly a shift back to, towards the United States over where the previous uh, administ- Filipino administration was. Um, my sense, I, I'm no expert on the Philippines, but my sense is that that will ebb and flow over time and, and between, um, between governments as governments change. Uh, from the American perspective, though, again, I'd, I'd reinforce a point I was alluding to earlier. The, the fact that four new bases have been opened up for the United States is not a reinforcement of America's presence in the region. It's, it's a reorganisation. So they're changing force posture and that is essentially a defensive move because China, uh, excuse me, American military bases in Guam, for instance, and in Japan are now so much more vulnerable to Chinese missiles that the United States feels compelled to move them around the region more to complicate Chinese targeting problems. And I think that's the reason why, for instance, we're getting bombers ba- uh, being rotated through Darwin now, uh, excuse me, through Tyndall in, uh, in northern Australia, and perhaps even why we're getting submarine rotations in Western Australia. It's because America's existing bases in the region are becoming more vulnerable. So this is a, a form of dispersal. It's essentially a defensive response rather than a, a reinforcement. On Korea, I think the, the point illustrated by Korea's um, moves towards nuclear weapons indicate that the actual reassurance that, that South Korea feels about the alliance with the United States is eroding. So it, there's actually much more going on than simply public opinion drifting towards nuclear weapons. Uh, Taiwan has already made significant moves itself to develop an independent strategic deterrent. It's not, a, not, not yet a nuclear deterrent, but it is a strategic deterrent in the sense that it's designed to deter North Korea's use of nuclear weapons. So uh, South Korea is now developing a ballistic missile force of its own, uh, land-based, air-based, excuse me, not air-based, Uh, land-based and sea-based. So it's putting ballistic missiles on submarines with the idea that it can hit the North Korean leadership uh, at very short notice if they get intelligence that uh, North Korea is about to launch uh, nuclear weapons. So that is designed to be a strategic deterrent, not with nuclear warheads, but certainly a strategic deterrent. Now, why would you do that if you felt like you were protected by the United States deterrent? Well, you wouldn't. The only reason to do it is because you no longer feel as reassured as you used to be about America's commitment to defend you with nuclear weapons if necessary. And I think the the South Koreans are absolutely right to feel that way because North Korea now has nuclear weapons that can reach the continental United States. So there is a fundamental problem here. Would the United States be prepared to sacrifice one of its own cities to defend South Korea? And I think Clearly, the answer to that has to be no. South Korea's defence is not important enough to America to make that kind of sacrifice, and therefore the South Koreans have to seek their own security. Yeah, I think it's hard for us in Australia to kind of conceptualise being so close to something so threatening. Um, we have the, we're lucky in that we're so far away, um, but it's definitely been interesting to see. It's interesting uh, you put it that way because we don't behave as if we're far away. I mean, the, the, it's common to hear that... Uh, that I mean, for instance, the former senator and and army general, Jim Molan, wrote a book called Danger on Our Doorstep. Well, that's a big doorstep. Uh, Beijing's closer to London than it is to Sydney. So we are far away. And 
I've often argued that uh, distance is Australia's single biggest defence asset. And unfortunately, the direction of Australian defence policy at the moment, our force structure, is towards compressing the distance between us and China, when in my view, what we ought to be doing is exploiting the distance. Uh, In your correspondence to Hugh White's Sleepwalk to War, uh, you explore White's point that Chinese leadership of East Asia is compatible with United States security. Uh, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, but um, you, you rebut this point and you explore it a little bit, but um, you finish with the point that a slowing Chinese economy will extend at the period of time wherein the US and China remain relatively equal in terms of national power. To put simply, if the US were to eventually retreat from Asia, it would be so far into the future that the rest of the region would catch up and prevent a new era of Chinese dominance. Do you still think that this is the case? And do you think that, you know, assuming the current trajectory continues, US resolve continues to erode and a step back occurs, does this assessment hinge on the assumption that the rest of the region will catch up? Uh, yeah, I suppose it does. But uh, what I mean, I think there's already signs of that happening. Japan has doubled its defence spending, for instance. Um, uh, th- there are going to be other countries that don't respond that way. I think there will be countries that that bandwagon with China, and the, the most obvious examples are those on. Um, continental Southeast Asia, maritime Southeast Asia is different. And that is, I think, for me, the pivot point and where Australia needs to devote its attention. We're lucky in that this is a maritime environment rather than a continental uh, environment. And that's because it's much harder to project power over the oceans than it is over land. Uh, It's hard enough over land, as the Russians are discovering in Ukraine at the moment, but projecting military power over the oceans is much more difficult and much more expensive. And in our current uh, technological environment, all of the advantages rest with the defending side, with the side that's not trying to project power. Uh, And so what we as Australians and, and I think other countries in the region who are who want to live in a world? Who want to live in a region that's not dominated by China? That they need to invest in uh, in developing a uh, a regional order and a, a military balance, where it's impossible for China to dominate the maritime realm, and that's relatively easy to do. I mean, we China itself has pioneered those capabilities with its uh, so-called uh, anti-access area denial capabilities. Uh, so it's within our grasp, even without the United States, it's within our grasp to develop capabilities where we can't prevent Chinese leadership in this region, but we certainly can prevent Chinese domination. And I think we can do that in part, in, in the military realm at least, by investing in capabilities that make it impossible for, uh, uh, you know, for China to maintain a kind of uh, a decisive military edge on the oceans, on the region's oceans. We talk so much about Australia being a middle power um, and about it being relatively small, um, but I suppose what, what, what room is there for smaller countries in comparison, obviously, to, to China and the US to achieve their goals and kind of um, mould the region in the way that is beneficial to them? You mentioned before about um, trying to avoid Chinese domination. Um, you, you can't prevent Chinese leadership. Um, but, yeah, h- how do you think particularly Australia, can, can leverage its position to achieve its goals? Well, I guess that question... Uh, I mean, I, a more traditional uh, thinker about... Australian thinker about these um, uh, 
uh, about these questions would argue that the that the answer is to align itself more closely with the United States, um, and we do achieve some influence and leverage in that way. But my view is that actually we can't rely on that um, in into the future for the reasons we've already talked about. Um, the United States needs a very good reason to become, uh, you know, to 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 settle into a long-term competition for influence with China in this region and I suspect they don't have a good enough reason and therefore eventually America will, in fits and starts, by degrees, will give way and the Chinese influence in the region will increase to the point where, yes, we do get a, a regional order that's, that's China-led, if not China-dominated. So in that world, what does Australia do? Well, to my mind... Uh, what, what we should aim for, firstly, is a region, uh, a Southeast Asian region and a Pacific Islands region where Australia can prevent China from being the dominant power. Now, in the Pacific Islands, there are, there are a number of ways to do that, and, and fortunately, we still have uh, a great many advantages. We have a, lo- a lot of things... Uh, on a, a lot of factors on our side, despite the fact that China's paying much more attention to the Pacific Islands. For instance, we're, we're geographically closer, so we're always, when there's, when there's trouble in the Pacific Islands region, whether that's political or natural disasters, we're, we're going to be first. If we, have, if we maintain the capabilities, we'll always be there first to help. Uh, we have cultural, political, historical, sporting ties with the Pacific Islands region that China will never have we're a member of the Pacific Islands Forum. China's not. Um, we are by far the largest foreign aid donor of the Pacific Islands, much bigger than China. In fact, China's aid spending in the, in the Pacific Islands region has levelled out in recent years. And finally, I would say there's an imbalance of resolve. So we're, we're much more committed to the Pacific Islands region because it means more to us. It's closer to us and it is our sphere of influence, whether we call it that or not. I would regard it as an Australian sphere of influence. So it may, it's, a, it's a first order priority for Australia, third order for China. So as long as we keep those advantages in mind and, and, and we're vigilant, I think we can maintain our position as the, as the preferred uh, uh, local power in the Pacific Islands region. Um, and you know, ultimately, the aim here should be to prevent Chinese military basing in, in our region. That, that would be, I think, uh, a, a big backward step for Australian security to have if not one, then several Chinese military bases in our immediate neighbourhood. So that, that's the Pacific Islands. On Southeast Asia, um, I think Australia's ambition should be really to, to tie itself much more closely with Indonesia. Um, Indonesia is critical, first of all, because it shares our geography. It shares our strategic geography, and I think even though there are many differences between us and Indonesia, ultimately it shares the same uh, strategic goal, which is that we both want Southeast Asia, maritime Southeast Asia to not be dominated by China because that would be really invidious to both of us and to our security outlook. And that, to me, is the kernel that's the basis of a very close strategic alignment between Indonesia and Australia. So we should be aiming towards, I think, a much more intimate strategic partnership with Indonesia. We'll never call it an alliance for uh, uh, you know, reasons of Indonesian political sensitivity, but that's the kind of thing we should be 
we should be aiming for uh, to, uh, and particularly as as Indonesia grows to become, I think by the middle of this cen- of this century, a great power. Um, we need to be on Indonesia's side, and we need to hurry up about it. Uh, yeah. So, with the forecast that you've provided, do you think there's a space for a Southeast Asian you know, regional security architecture? It doesn't ASEAN currently doesn't really fit that um, description. But do you think there's a need for that? Uh, I, I don't see a great prospect for it for, for something like that that would that would have a great deal of influence. Um, what I would hope for is is something broader than that, a kind of um, uh, a coming together of, of the great powers that we listed earlier uh, in, in the Asian region more broadly, not just Southeast Asia, um, but, uh, you know, regular meetings. You, you, you could call it a concert, although I'd, I wouldn't want to draw the links too strongly with Europe, um, but you could call it a concert of Asian powers that meets regularly. And I, and I think, you know, Australia's ambition should be firstly to uh, to create an entity of that kind and secondly for Indonesia to be a member of it. We, we, we can't hope to be one ourselves, we're too small, but it's, it, it's very much in our interest for Indonesia to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we'll move on to the, uh, the Defence Strategic Review. Mm. Um, what did you make of the recent Defence Strategic Review? Uh, in particular, how does the concept of national defence differ from previous conceptions of Australia's place in the world, such as you know, Defence of Australia and the Forward Defence Doctrine? Well, I, I was overall quite happy with the Defence Strategic Review in the sense that I am very much of that, uh, of that school that believes the primary role of the Australian Defence Force is to defend the Australian continent. Uh, so the, that, that is... You know, usually referred to as the Defence of Australia School as opposed to the Forward Defence School. So I saw a lot in the DSR that reminded me of that old uh, Defence of Australia uh, doctrine and idea. Uh, I noticed that rhetorically the, um, the, the Defence Strategic Review def- dispenses with that language. It says, uh, you know, the Defence of Australia doctrine is no longer appropriate. But I saw it not so much as a discarding the old DOA but more updating it and modernising it towards an era of, of uh, great power competition. Um, so in that sense, I approved very much of it. I, I, I thought there was a lot of sentiment in there uh, about Australian force structure and Australian defence strategy that is sympathetic to the idea that you know, the job of the ADF is to defend the Australian continent. The problem, however, is that it seems to me AUKUS, which is the other big Australian defence initiative right now, is very much in tension with that idea of the defence of Australia. So this, the centrepiece of AUKUS is the acquisition of these nuclear-powered submarines. And it seems to me the whole job of these submarines is, is not to defend the Australian continent, but to uh, really buttresses a, a forward defence doctrine of um, supporting United States military operations thousands of kilometres to Australia's north. It would give us the capability to hem the Chinese Navy in along its coastline and to support American military operations in defence of Taiwan. So it seems to me there's a there's a pretty clear tension between those two things. Yeah, uh, I mean, we spoke earlier about you know, eroding American resolve in the region. Do you think that AUKUS is in some sense designed to keep the US in the region? Yeah, uh, I do. Yeah. I do, but I don't think it'll work. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I think this is a gambit by Australia to try and tie the United States down, uh, as is the, the, the basing arrangements that, have, that we talked about earlier for Tyndall and um, HMAS Sterling. Uh, but, uh, you know, easy come, easy go. It's not that difficult to leave these military bases behind if you no longer need them or simply to, 
you know, in operational terms, make them less significant than they used to be. So uh, I, I, I don't think AUKUS really does help tie the United States down. I mean, the AUKUS is a huge boon to the US military industrial complex, to American shipbuilding, you know, to American arms manufacturers and so on, but it, it's not... It's not what you'd call a costly signal. It doesn't require a great deal of commitment from the United States. In fact, it's all upside. When you when you when you consider how this deal was offered to the United States in in early two thousand and twenty one, uh, you have to imagine the United States, the, the Biden administration, was absolutely thrilled. This was a close, highly trusted uh, ally. That had been with has been with the United States through thick and thin military con- every military conflict since the Second World War and, and before actually, um, uh, you know a close uh, intelligence partner which has been trusted to with, with America's most closely held secrets, and they come to you with an agreement to spend upwards of three hundred billion dollars in the American arms industry, which in the process will not will also reinforce America's Pacific submarine fleet by, well, roughly 12% by my calculations. So it'll be a 12, by the middle of the century, if we have all eight submarines in service, that'll be a 12% addition to what the United States uh, proposes to have in service at that time. So you're, if you're the Biden administration looking at this deal, I mean, you, you don't even have to pitch, you don't even have to sell it to Australia. We came to them and said, can we do this, please? Of course you'd accept. So this is, to me, this is all upside for the Biden administration and for the US generally. And uh, you know, th- there's not a great deal of risk. And so it's not a commit. Uh, it's not a demonstration of American commitment. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Paul Kenning recently made a speech and he said a lot of things, but I think one of the things um, that I've been thinking about is there really is only one guy paying for it, which is kind of what you've been speaking about. And that is, right. that is us. And like, you know, a lot of the other things he said might have been... Um, controversial or not but i think that that one will ring true for a while um yeah so in recently you've highlighted the asymmetry in the dsr um between you know defense minister miles's introduction uh, which highlighted the need to protect our economic connection to the world and maintain the rules-based order with the actual report can you expand on you know what that asymmetry and that tension means and yeah i didn't see a great deal of emphasis on uh protecting australia's sea lanes in the dsr itself um, it was featured in Miles's introduction, and it was. It's also a subject that he landed on in media interviews immediately after the um, the announcement in March in uh, San Diego. So clearly, it's it's foremost in his mind that that this is a justification for the AUKUS submarine project. Now, good on him for trying, because AUKUS does need a strategic justification, and the ones that have been offered so far have been pretty thin. So effectively, what what the Morrison government did, for instance, when it first launched AUKUS, was to say, well, we need a stronger deterrent. That won't really do. I mean, there are many ways to to deter threats to Australia. Why did we pick this one? And in fact, there was no justification offered at all. So I give Miles some credit for even trying to offer a justification, but frankly, I don't think it's a very persuasive one. Um, Australia's sea lines of communication are huge. They stretch around the world. Proposing to protect them with eight nuclear-powered submarines strikes me as a bit fanciful. Um, and also, you know, perhaps buried in there is this idea that, well, Australia could in some future contingency be uh, blockaded 
and therefore we need the ability to break that blockade. Well, I mean, that's really hard to do as well. We're protected by geography here. Australia, uh, as I was saying earlier, is very far away from China. Um, it's a very large landmass, so blockading Australia from getting uh, key imports and from exporting its goods, again, incredibly difficult. So on, on those levels, it, 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 is, it seems to me uh, a real stretch to justify the nuclear submarines that way. And as I said, I don't think the DSR really tries. It seems a bit strange that if we want to understand how Australia views itself and its strategic circumstances, we have to go to the DSR, the introduction of the DSR, media appearances. Do you think there's a need to have this, and I suppose the DSR did um, recommend, accepted by the government, biennial national defence um, documents be put out? But do you think there's a need for one authoritative text for our strategy? Or I mean, it can't hurt, but... Um you know, in the end, they're all reports, uh, and what what I've found over years of observing this is that um, uh, yes, there will be uh, the the bureaucracy inside the Defence Department will make good faith attempts to try to implement the recommendations of the reports issued by the government. But you know, over time, the hold that those documents have over policymakers uh, starts to loosen. And, you know, governments respond to circumstances. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, there was a white paper released just months before the 9-11 attacks. And then effectively, you know, the whole document became moribund and we started again. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the it is important for the government to make these statements. But I think it's not so much to guide strategy or force structure but it uh, more of a way to level with the public and to be open with the public about why we're doing the things we're doing and on that level I think we've been deficient for a long time I mean you know even in the media appearances I'm talking about earlier uh, Miles really dances so delicately around the topic of who exactly we are defending ourselves against I mean it's such a difficult thing to talk about for good reason but you know this is a democracy government's the government and the Australian Defence Force can't defend Australia alone. The public needs to buy in. It needs the uh, the authority provided by uh, you know public consent, uh, and that can't come solely through elections. It has to it has to be a near constant process of consultation uh, with the public. Yeah, I think um, one thing that happened recently was the, um, the Sydney Morning Herald's coverage of the China threat, quote unquote. There's a point there about the public actually caring and reading these reports and in the reality that most of the public probably just read the headlines. Um, and so when you have this kind of, you know, fear-mongering in the way that we saw, I think, do you think that can be quite detrimental to how we have these conversations? Um, I'm not... I mean, I, I was very critical of, and I am very critical of that, that Red Alert series that ran in the Sydney Morning Herald. I think it was, it was wildly alarmist. Um, and there is evidence that uh, that the public, through through the Lowy Institute's own polling, for instance, there's strong evidence that the public does view the China threat with greater alarm than it used to. But actually, I think probably I, I wouldn't overstate the role of the media and of even of public commentators like me and other people who who commentate on national security. Uh, I wouldn't overstate the influence of those people. In fact, I, I don't think you really have a national debate on any of these questions until politicians get involved. Uh, and I mean, like, one of the things they said in this 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 
series of articles. You, you alluded to earlier, our number one, one of our biggest security benefits is our distance. Mm. And one of the claims that was made was that China would be on our doorstep within, you know, I think it was maybe 48 hours. I'll have to double-check the exact claim. But, like, I, 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 of course you shouldn't overstate the, the, the importance of, of commentators. But it seems like promoting falsehoods like that, like, I don't know, what, what's the point? I, I guess I'm just confused as to, like, why, why that even happened. Like, Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't have... Look, there's a partial answer from the perspective of politicians. I guess there's a partial answer in that um, the the previous government, I think, made a judgment that a uh, a more alarmist view about China would play well politically, mm. domestically. Now, I think the result of the last election actually throws a big question mark over that judgment because I don't think it did work uh, electorally. Uh, but anyway, they believed that it would work and the opposition at the time, the Labor opposition, decided that it would be electorally too risky to stand up to the government on that. And you know, for, for many for decades now, the, the Labor Party's view has been that there is simply no sense picking a fight with the Liberal Party over national security because it, it's worried about looking weak and so on. Now, I think that fear is overstated and Keating's view on that in the past has been, has been I think, quite right, which is that you are only at risk of looking weak on national security if you don't construct an alternative narr- narrative of your own about, you know, about Australian foreign policy. So if it's purely uh, oppositional, if it's purely uh, a question of saying, no, no, the Liberal Party's overstating the threat, then yes, you might get accused of being soft on national security. But if you have the skill and, and the capability of weaving your own story about Australia's place in the region, then I think... There's less to worry about in that regard. Thank you for that. Um, the DSR made the point that the defence capabilities, as, as they are right now, are not fit for purpose. Uh, my question is, you know, how did we get here? Like somewhere along the line, perhaps everywhere along the line, um, it seems that policymakers have shown a level of maybe negligence to fail to prevent this from happening. I mean, is this something that just came out of the blue war? Uh, I actually don't think the situation's quite that bad, um, but. I mean, it is worth saying, and uh, it's been reinforced by the latest uh, National Audit Office report about the Frigate Project, that um, there are clear deficiencies in the way that we buy weapons and um, uh, clear deficiencies in the way we structure our defence forces. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, we still have this roughly equal balance between Army, Navy and Air Force is, to me... Uh, a signal of the fact that um, it, it is a structure that is very difficult to move in any one direction. I mean, it's a it's a giant ocean liner, and getting getting it to uh, you know point in a different direction is extremely difficult, absent a a major crisis. So, to some degree, this happened after nine eleven when we did pivot towards uh, you know a, a slightly different force structure. But again, that was kind of at the margins. Actually, I mean, it didn't require huge changes to Australian force structure. But I would argue now, if, uh, if I was in charge, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be building a force structure that was much more uh, uh, Navy and Air Force heavy, where the Army plays a, a much more ancillary role and a lighter uh, neighbourhood constabulary role. Um, now, we're, to a degree, we've moved in that direction with the DSR, but not in, a, not in the kind of uh, fulsome way that I would suggest. On, on that point, sorry, um, I've, made the, I've, I've heard the argument that... 
you know, the preference for a focused, and I, I, I would say I agree with you, um, that a focused posture is probably a good idea. Um, but do we run the risk of, you know, not calculating correctly the future needs? Um, yeah, there's always this argument that, well, we, we, can, we never know what we're going to be involved in. And, and so, um, uh, you know, some people will say, well, look at Timor. You know, we had a military that was, that was not designed for that kind of contingency and we, and we only got Americans to help us out at the last minute and um, we got through that by the skin of our teeth. And also nobody anticipated Afghanistan or Iraq. So the implication of that argument is that, well, we need a bit of everything. We need a balanced force so that we can respond to any contingency. Now, the obvious counter-argument there is that those are all choices as well. So when you choose balance, you choose not to specialise in certain things and potentially not specialise in the most serious threats. So, uh, And I would also argue that, you know, if we didn't, I mean, Timor is perhaps a, a, a different case, but certainly for Iraq and Afghanistan, the fact that we didn't have forces specifically designed for those kind of operations is not a bad thing. I mean, those operations were not core national security interests for Australia anyway. So we shouldn't be designing our force to cope with what seemed to me marginal contingencies. We should be designing our defence force to take on the most serious uh, plausible threats to Australian security, and to me at the moment that is uh, that 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 means squarely a focus on defending Australia's air and maritime approaches to our north against the possibility of uh, you know Chinese military threats. Yeah, of course. I think it makes sense when you think about Australia as being so isolated, so distant, as we've said. Um, right. You know, with the archipelago to the near north, right? Like, um, it makes sense that you know, what we need is maritime and air capabilities. Well, I mean. Uh, you, you could take a, a, an example like, um, let's say, Israel or the countries that border uh, Russia in, uh, in Central Europe. I mean, there's a very good reason why they f- their force structures are land and air-based rather than sea-based. It's because that's where the threat is. So that, that, that's a very simple proposition. You don't, you don't have a balanced defence force just for the sake of it. You, you structure your defence force you know, to face the threat, to face the most likely and the most serious threat. And so um, balance for its own sake doesn't strike me as a, as a worthwhile or a, uh, or a rational goal. Of course. Um, so moving on now, um, in a discussion with the Quincy Institute recently with uh, Beck Stratting and Hugh White, um, you highlighted and you spoke about the issues and strengths of the AUKUS announcement. Um, but you spoke about this point about, you know, increasing integration with the US may see us lose our independence to some extent. And I'm just curious as to whether or not we've ever really had a level of independence um, or, or what that level has been in the past. I mean, we talk about Iraq and Afghanistan and even Timor. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan, our force posture, we, we, we adapted our force posture to go along with the US, it seems. Um, you know, with the US, since in every conflict since World War II, has there been times when, I, I know that, you know, the Defence of Australia doctrine was founded on the concept of we may not be able to count on our um, partners and allies to come to our defence, but have we ever really been able to exercise our independence in a way that you know you would like to see? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I do think on a superficial level, the, the arguments that, that Richard Miles and others have made about AUKUS and about, uh, you know, insisting that we maintain our sovereignty and that these are sovereign capabilities... Those arguments are plausible uh, at a surface level. 
Um, so, you know, we've always operated weapon systems uh, that we don't build ourselves. That doesn't make us less sovereign. Um, and so, in a sense, uh, the nuclear submarines we're proposing to buy are no different. And yes, as you say, we've we've always operated alongside the US in these uh, military conflicts, but those were sovereign decisions. Those were decisions we decided to take and we could have chosen the other way. We weren't prevented from making uh, a decision to go the other way. And other countries have, other allies of the United States have in the past made decisions to not go along in, in particular conflicts and it hasn't necessarily hurt them over the long term. Britain didn't fight in Vietnam, for instance. Uh, there are other examples. Um, so I wouldn't overstate the sovereignty argument on that level, but what I would say is that there is a level of, um, if you like, technological determinism about all of this. Actually, it's more than technological, but uh, what I'm getting at is that when you, when you choose to buy military capabilities that seem, at least to my mind, specifically designed or ideally designed to work alongside your ally in operations thousands of kilometres to our north that are ideally designed for a US, to support a US-China conflict. And when you spend, you know, a whole generation working alongside the US military-industrial complex, when you integrate US tactics and US... um, uh, US doctrine into your own, then at the moment that the balloon goes up, when the Americans actually say in this, listen, guys, we need your help here, it seems to me implausible that having done all that work, at that exact moment you're going to say, sorry, no, we're out. Mm. We're not going to join you. So it's not in a formal sense that we're giving up our sovereignty, but it seems to me in the practical uh, real-world scenario that we're looking at, yeah, we are... We're we're in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, I mean, if the you know the the interoperability argument is if that is the reason that we're pursuing the path that we are, why wouldn't we then reap the benefits of having done that? Even if, you know, it's it's almost kind of irrational to just do it because of the sunk costs of putting time into the you know the interoperability. Yeah, um, but I suppose yeah, I, I'd only quibble with with the phrase "reap the benefits" because yeah. I, I don't <laughs> think there are many benefits <laughs> to be had, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I see your point. Yeah. Um, so I've recently heard this phrase that we need another Cuban Missile Crisis moment um, where, you know, the US and China come to the brink of world annihilation but then step back and, you know, all is well, right? Because that's what happened in the Cold War, obviously, right? Um, but what is your view on, on this kind of this comment and the need to set up guardrails? I know that Kevin Rudd has made that argument in his, in his book. but yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis analogy is that... The Soviets breached what I think both sides up to that point had uh, previously implicitly agreed was an American sphere of influence. Uh, So by placing uh, nuclear weapons so close to American territory, you know, in 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 a region where, you know, the Monroe Doctrine uh, sort of dictated was... Uh, America's exclusive sphere of influence, I think the the, the Soviets implicitly breached that agreement. Um, the difference in in Asia right now is that we we are nowhere near any kind of implicit agreement about what the respective spheres of influence are, and Taiwan is really the locus for 
or that dispute. So I think the United States, if they had to define a sphere of influence, and they would probably uh, insist that um, you know e- even even acknowledging such a thing would be to give too much away to China. But if if we had to define an American sphere of influence, then I think Taiwan would be part of it to this to this day to this moment. And yet China, of course, would insist that no, Taiwan properly belongs within our sphere of influence. So. Um, uh, the, 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 f- the fact that there is no stability, no implicit agreement between the sides on, that, on those kind of questions makes this a particularly dangerous uh, period. Uh, U- Europe, of course, Cold War Europe is the other example to draw on where you know, each side basically agreed that they wouldn't interfere. You know, the Soviets crushed an uprising in Hungary and um, uh, the Prague Spring, um, of course... Uh, later on in the 60s um, and the Americans didn't react the Americans didn't respond because it was in that happened in the Soviet sphere of influence uh, so yeah the stability of this uh, this contest between the United States and China if we're going to have one will rest partly on whether the two sides can agree where they would not interfere and of course on Taiwan there is there is nothing like agreement in fact there's there's explicit disagreement. Obviously, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, it came down a lot to the leadership of um, JFK and Khrushchev. Um, I would. I, I, I'm curious as to you know what the implications are of obviously. Let's pretend that Donald Trump gets back into office, or even let's just say Biden gets re-elected. Mm. The possibility of someone of their level of statesmanship having to deal with uh, of a crisis with such huge implications, right? Mm. Well, it's interesting that you should focus on the American leaders in that equation and not the Chinese. I mean, we, there's, we, we know much less about Chinese leadership than we do about the Americans. So there is a, a, a temptation to focus on the, um, on the weaknesses in American leadership. Uh, and it's justifiable. The questions are, uh, the, the question marks over American leadership are justified. Uh, but because China is, um, is such a closed book, and because it's been so successful over the last 40 years in its rise as an economic power, there is a tendency to think that the Chinese won't make mistakes, but I think that itself is a real, you know, is a real um, uh, analytical error that we can fall into. I mean, <coughs> clearly, just looking at the, you know, the, the period of communist rule in China, it is capable of making enormous mistakes, mm. like colossal world-changing mistakes. Um, so we, we, should be, we should be wary of that. And in fact, I, I think the real risk here is not so much leadership on either side, um, although I'm as concerned as anybody about a return of the, of the Trump uh, administration, of another Trump administration. Uh, but there is, a, there is a more systemic risk that both sides misunderstand the capability and the resolve of the other. Um, so China may believe that the United States would just give way in the event of uh, uh, it threatening Taiwan. Uh, and I think there's there's clear evidence that the United States underestimates China's capabilities still. Uh, I mean, th- th- there's more clarity coming in that regard, but, um, yeah, I still, I still think the United States... Uh, underestimates just uh, how quickly 
and and how big an adversary China actually is. Mm. Um, on the point of you know internal stability, at the beginning of this conversation, um, we said that you know the US is a very strong power still. Um, do you think that we overestimate the internal stability of the US? I mean, in twenty, like we saw the insurrection, obviously. Um, you know, there's questions over the, the future leadership, who's going to be the president, um, and the the kind of negative conversations around either choice. Um, what, what what do you make of that, like our uh, estimation of their stability? I actually think that, if anything, uh, the, the sustainability and the resilience of American democracy is being underestimated. Um, partly... I sort of have this weirdly upside-down view about uh, about Trump in that um, while it clearly, you know, the, the Trump phenomenon clearly raises a great many problems and is very alarming in many respects, the fact that the system could accommodate a figure like that is um, perhaps... I think can be plausibly read as um, a sign that uh, the system is more resilient than, say, many European democracies, where a figure like that could would would have much more trouble uh, rising to the top, despite the fact that there is clear sentiment in favour of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I I do think there's a lot. Um, you know, there's an old quote by. Um, uh, economist Adam Smith who said there's a lot of ruin in a nation which is to say you know it takes a lot to uh, to bring down a country uh, there's a lot of built-in resilience there and I think that's particularly true of the United States so uh, American democracy has um, is clearly at a, at a nadir but it's been through worse as well of course, yeah. there was a civil war right right <laughs> um, I think that's a good place to end it um, but before we do um Reading, watching, listening. Can I just get your opinion on one issue? But before you do, I just want to note that you do have a book coming out soon. So I, I think that everybody <laughs> should keep on there with. Um, oh, thank you. Strategy. I appreciate you. Um, uh, I appreciate you mentioning it. So I guess well, two things. One is the the upcoming issue of Australian Foreign Affairs. I will have uh, an essay on that on uh, the question of uh, these new American facilities in Darwin and in Western Australia that we uh, that we just talked about and what that means for Australia. The, the military threat to Australia. Uh, and then, yes, in, in late August, I'll have a book coming out called The Echidna Strategy, um, which is, um, well, it, it's very much on the themes we've been talking about today, uh, an alternative view of how Australia can secure itself and secure its interests in uh, what I think will be a, a much more, not a totally post-American era, but an era of diminishing uh, American influence and relevance in our in our security. Um, so uh, I hope re- uh, listeners look out for those. Um, other recommendations. There was a, there was a series uh, on Stan that I caught recently, which despite the star power in the, um, in the cast, just seemed to go completely under the radar. Uh, uh, Sean Penn and Julia Roberts uh, played the leading characters in a, a, an eight-part series called Gaslit, which you would think going into it is is a s- series about some social media scandal, but is actually about Watergate uh, and Watergate as told through um, uh, Nixon's uh, Attorney General uh, Mitchell and his wife. Uh, 
and it's it's fantastic. It, it weakens a little in the last couple of episodes, but it's it's incredibly good, very moving, and also very funny. Um, and then listening, I would always recommend the podcast um, by Adam Tooze, The Economist, and particularly there was a recent episode on China, which I thought ended incredibly strongly about the uh, touches on many of the themes we've just been discussing over the last little while about uh, America's place in Asia and its contest with China. So uh, he's he's a fascinating figure. I agree. Um, I think you know our delegates will find great benefit in, in, in each of those recommendations. Um, Sam, thank you for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I'm thrilled. To, I'm thrilled I was asked. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.